You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on December 15th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of History of Science and Technology Q&A. So I'm happy to try and answer questions about history, science, technology, mathematics, um, both things that I personally have been involved in and things that I might have studied from the more distant past. So let's see, we have some questions saved up here. There's one from Thama Gaddy. Can we consider very early games like the game of Go as an expression of a mathematical thinking? It's an interesting question. You know, there are games that date, I think Go uh, is probably not quite known when it originated, um, but certainly in antiquity, you know, a couple of thousand years ago or more, chess likewise, and so on. There are definitely, and, and there are other games like... Um, uh, what is it? Nine Man's Morris is an old game. There's the, the Royal Game of Ur, which presumably had something to do with the city of Ur in, in the Babylonian times. Um, so there are definitely games from 4,000 years ago and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, in most cases, we kind of know how they were played. We know what the rules, but we know we, know we have boards and we can deduce um, something about how they were played. And so a question would be, what's the relationship between those games and kind of mathematical kind of work? I'm not sure that's very clear. I think one thing you might ask is if you look at, let's say, Babylonian tablets, there were plenty that had things like mathematical word problems on them. And there were others that had kind of design-like, game-like boards and there were still others that had kind of mathematical patterns. So let's take another example of something, sort of a crossover between the game and the mathematics, which is mazes. So there are, uh, recently saw a Babylonian tablet that has an array of, I don't know, six or eight different maze-like patterns on it, which I thought was very interesting, and an example of something not that different from the kind of enumerate possible programs for things, but it's just one tablet and has no context. All it has is pictures of those mazes on it. It has no kind of explanatory leaflet that comes with it or anything. It's just here are some maze-like things. In, in the past, uh, well, certainly there's one particular maze pattern that is uh, often found in lots of different places. I mean, it was, it was said at one time to have been the, the design of uh, the labyrinth on, at Knossos and on Crete that was the, you know, the home of the Minotaur. At other times, it was said to be the, the logo of the city of Troy. It had a lot of distinguished history, but it's one particular maze pattern out of many. And is that mathematical? Is that more recreational? Is it more like a game? It's not really clear. It's not clear quite how that intent really worked out. I think a thing that um, uh, is um, something to think about in, in terms of these things is the, the sort of relationship of, quotes, recreational mathematics to the actual doing of mathematics. For a long time, there have been sort of, um, well, another question sort of who does mathematics? Uh, 
mathematics is done uh, in in, Antic- in in Babylon and places like that. Plenty of mathematics was done for the sake of actually doing commercial transactions, uh, uh, collecting taxes, things like this. But you know, when you look at the mathematical exercises that were given there, some of them were almost recreational exercises. Um, they were kind of questions that were sort of a fun question that perhaps was a question intended to be something that would encourage the student to think math was interesting, but might have been just sort of a fun question. For example, good example from 1205, I guess, uh, uh, Leonardo Fibonacci's uh, Liber Abaci, the book of the abacus, um, is mostly a book about sort of doing arithmetic and importing Hindu Arabic numerals to the West. But at the end of that book is this problem about rabbits and, you know, rabbits in this year, and they have some number of uh, each rabbit has two rabbits, uh, has, has you add together the number of rabbits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was the origination of the Fibonacci series. What was it doing there? It's at the very end of Libra Bacci. It's the, it's the very last section. What was it doing? Was it recreational math? Was it kind of a practice exercise for people who had learned arithmetic? I don't think it's very clear. It's just given there as a consider this problem, it's, you know, you can consider it. But I think that the, um, this question of sort of the, the recreational and the, um, uh, uh, and, the, and the kind of, uh, the, uh, well, there's, there's three things. There's games, there's recreational math, and there's math that is being done for furthering the, the practice of math or for the applications of math. Even the idea of sort of recreational math had sort of separate tracks. I'll give you an example. Uh, digit sequences. There are lots of kind of recreational math problems. You know, can you, if you have a, a thing written out with letters, you know, can you fill in digits that will correspond to these letters to make it a valid addition sum? Can you do a Sudoku-like thing? Okay. Can you do th- these kinds of things, which are sort of, quotes, recreational math? And the question of sort of the interface between those things and professional math is interesting. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it isn't. There were, in past centuries, people would publish, uh, you know, books of sort of recreational math. Those people were typically not, you know, it's, it's so complicated because there was so much overlap between these different areas. There are people who were definitely recreational mathematicians um, who would publish sort of books of puzzles and they would write the, the puzzle column of a newspaper, things like that. But those people were not typically professional mathematicians. Then there were also, I would say, professional mathematicians who who rather turned their nose up at the sort of the recreational math. Oh, who cares about digit sequences? That's just in recreational math type thing, that kind of thing. Uh, But then there were occasionally cases where people would sort of dip into the recreational for some scientific purpose. I mean, I can give you an example of that in my own kind of life and times, the, the game of life cellular automaton that um, John Conway developed um, was uh, uh, back in 1968 or so, was something that a lot of people kind of studied for recreational purposes. They had found, oh, there's this cute configuration of cells and it does this and it does that. Back in the early 1980s, I went and tried to collect all that stuff 
because I wanted to try and do some science on it. I wanted to try and figure out some general principles about how cellular automaton like that might work. In fact, re recently, I've been planning a project of looking at kind of the meta-engineering of the game of life. People have, over the 50 years that the, that the quotes, game has existed, that people have uh, uh, found all kinds of elaborate configurations. There have been whole chains of sort of engineering that have been developed about how you make glider guns, street glider streams that do this and that and the other. And it's very interesting to see because it's a case where you can kind of trace the history of engineering, not in something which has constraints of physicality, but just something where it's a pattern of bits. And it's like, well, what pattern of bits did people learn about and understand and, and build from? And, and so that's sort of an interesting case where I've been sort of trying to scientify what has been essentially a, a recreational activity. I think that... Um, uh, there are many interesting crossovers. The Rubik's Cube was an interesting crossover. It was at some level designed, developed as kind of a design exercise. Then it became kind of this, uh, this sort of math-like thing. But very quickly in that case, there were particular mathematicians who were sort of crossover mathematicians, like there was person David Singmaster, I think, who was an early person who came in to do sort of the group theory of the Rubik's Cube, but he's also a person who has extensively cataloged and studied recreational mathematics, but he's also a mathematician. Even something like the quotes game of life, which is sort of build as a game, John Conway eventually admitted to me after a very long conversation once that he actually invented it for, for real sort of mathematical purposes about enumerating recursive functions, but he sort of said he thought people would be more impressed if he presented it as a game. So that's a, a confusing case. I think the question of games as like chess and things like that, are they mathematical problems? Well, for a long time, chess was not sort of thought about mathematically. Uh, eventually, by the end of the 1800s, people had started to think about sort of things like chess more mathematically. I think the idea of a game tree was something developed around 1912-ish timeframe. Um, that was uh, by, a, by a person from set theory, actually. Um, I think that was uh, Zermelo, uh, inventor of um, uh, the sort of standard axioms of, of set theory, um, co-inventor of the, the ZF axioms of set theory. Um, but you know what he was, what a game tree, a game tree is asking, given that you're in this configuration of the game, there's a sort of tree of possibilities. You can, you can make this move at the next step and the next move, you can make further branches from each of those branches and so on. But that idea of sort of mathematicizing chess um, was an idea that, that arose at that time. I, I think it had been kind of sort of hinted at by people writing chess books. And then it was kind of jumped in on by sort of the actual mathematicians and then that sort of gradually evolved in that direction. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, um, I think there's a, a sort of a, uh, uh, it's surprising that chess had existed for thousands of years and not been a source of like math problems. Now it's worth remembering, for example, card games, games of chance in the 1600s, that was what led the Bernoullis to, um, uh, to get interested in, um, in probability theory was you know, what could you do from games of chance? That was a case where, in a sense, the, um, uh, those, the, the, kind of, um, the, the, the game was mathematicized um, and, and led to a bunch of mathematics. 
Uh, you can also ask the, the opposite question. When has sort of mathematics led to things which were uh, kind of recreational? Um, I'm trying to think of good examples of that. I, I remember one, Tetris, for example, uh, the game of you know falling blocks and you arrange them and so on. I think that was a, a former student of a former employee of ours who was um, a Russian physics, mathematical physicist, um, who um, uh, had been studying things about um, statistical mechanics and um, and so on. And, and Tetris was kind of a a uh, something that came out of essentially the the mathematics of or the mathematical physics of um, uh, of things about crystals and so on. And that was kind of an idea that was was spawned from that. I mean, I suppose the question you could ask um, in, uh, um, uh, you know, to what extent are the people who are impressive players of different kinds of games um, also the mathematicians? One thing that's always interesting about a game like chess is that the sort of the range of different kinds of people and backgrounds of people who are sort of serious chess players is extremely diverse in a sense, probably more diverse than the backgrounds of people who are going to be sort of pure mathematicians, for instance. Um, so, but I think that the overlap between sort of the great chess players and the great mathematicians, um, there's a, you know, they're, they're disjoint sets with a small overlap. Um, and uh, I think, um, so, so I, I would tend to think that the, the interface between games and mathematics was not as great as one might think. It, it kind of what it feels like the same kind of thing, but I think operationally it was practiced for different motivations and probably by largely different people would be my guess. But but knowing really what the origination of some of these games and so on were is is difficult. Um, I mean, I don't think one knows. Uh, for for example, the game of Go. To take that as an example. The game of Go is not an easy game to analyze mathematically. It's actually super hard. Um, and I'm not sure that that's a case where, in a sense, uh, the, you, know, you might say, well, I'm just going to write down math. You know, I'm going to say, I've got a chessboard configuration. I'm going to write down math that says the score of this chessboard configuration is X. Well, it doesn't work very well. It's, it's more difficult than that. It's a more computational kind of problem, a more computationally irreducible kind of problem, and kind of the obvious math doesn't work too well. In fact, one could even argue that if the obvious math works too well, the game is not going to be that interesting. I mean, in tic-tac-toe, for example, where there are only 4,000 board configuration, 4,000 possible games you can play, and um, the, uh, it's, it's sort of rather easy to analyze what, what happens. It's not such an exciting game. And in fact, one might even argue that what makes a game of the type of something like Go or chess interesting is that it is not accessible to something like mathematical analysis. Um, and so that, that might be a reason why kind of the, the process of, of game playing might be separate from, um, from the process of sort of mathematical analysis. You know, mathematical analysis, you try and get everything to the point where you can sort of crush it all down and explain everything. I suppose it's an interesting question whether there's an interface between that and, for example, programming uh, for computers and so on. And again, I don't think there's a huge correlation there. I think those are pretty separate kinds of activities. You don't find, you know, the chess grandmasters aren't particularly the great programmers and vice versa. 
There are certainly people who have interest in both things. For example, um, well, Alan Turing, for instance, um, did do some work on sort of making a computer play chess. But I think he was more interested in the what can a computer do than he was on the chess side of it. There was a person called David Champanone, who was, a, uh, I think, a friend of Turing's in, in college in Cambridge, um, who was also involved in this uh, can you make a chess computer type thing. I think David Champanone was a more serious chess player who had been a mathematics student, later became a, a well-known economist. Um, but that was, uh, again, you know, I think that these are specific examples, and I, I don't think there's a general trend there. Let's see. Um, well, there's a, there's a question here from uh, Gecko. Is science still the place where the best thrive, or has that shifted to, quotes, industry? What's the historical context? Well, you know, science has only been a professionalized activity for, well, 150 years, maybe. It had a sort of a, a buildup over time. I mean, for a long time, the way you got to do science was you were either kind of independently wealthy or you had a day job that was being a courtier in some court or something, something else. And science was a vocation that was done kind of on the side. The professionalization of science happened slowly. I mean, people like, like Isaac Newton was a professional scientist. He was the Regius Professor in Cambridge. Um, presumably, the fact that it's called the Regius Professor means it was paid for by the king, although I'm not, not absolutely sure about that. Um, but the idea that there were people who were professionals doing these kinds of intellectual uh, pursuits was was not has not been a thing for that long. I mean, I think Immanuel Kant was uh, probably the, one of the first professional philosophers, so to speak, employed to be a professor of philosophy, so to speak. Um, uh, even that, even when you say a professor of X, does that really make you a professional, whatever it is? Because your real job, in a sense, is teaching. I mean, I know when, when I was a professor long ago, um, in a first approximation, you know, even the fanciest research universities sort of thought the the job was teaching and the research was kind of an on-the-side thing and it was more significant on-the-side thing if you were bringing in grants and government money and all this kind of thing for it. But in a sense, the thing that people were being paid to do was to teach and research was kind of a, 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 a sort of an add-on type thing. Now, the idea of um, kind of... The, it's sort of been interesting that, that there's been, in some countries, there's been a kind of a, a government research strand, an industrial research strand, as well as a university research strand. And in different countries, the relative kind of uh, prestige of those different strands has been different, um, and at different times in history also. Um, and I think the, uh, uh, this idea, you know, sometimes... In, in a place like the US, there's sometimes thought to be kind of a big pecking order of, you know, the best universities and the second best universities and so on. And sometimes the government labs have been kind of out of that pecking order. It's kind of like they're just the thing, a thing where people do research and it's not like, well, this lab is better than that lab and that's better, you know, that slots into the university system in this place. They're kind of a different track, which is sort of an interesting, interesting case. Uh, I mean, by the way, it's worth remembering that in the U.S., there are a few universities that have 
sort of broad, sort of uh, high, high sort of uh, achievement in a lot of different areas. But there's a lot of variation of, you know, a university that may be kind of an obscure university for some purposes, just has a fantastic department of X that got developed as a result of some particular individual or some coincidence of history or, or whatever else. But I think this question of, of how do people, uh, you know, where, how do people kind of get to a point where they can be productive and work they're doing, that's a complicated issue. And it's not even clear that, uh, you know, there are some definite be careful what you wish for type situations. You know, there can be cases like the Institute for Advanced Study, where I worked uh, years ago now, um, was kind of a place where been set up in the 1930s, and it was kind of a, okay, now just go and think for the rest of your life. Well, there are some people for whom that's really a, a big win and wonderful, and they can be very productive. And there are also lots of people for, for whom this kind of, okay, you've got 50 years, just go think, is not a great way to be productive. Um, and so this idea about whether, um, uh, you know, what, what counts as sort of being um, uh, a place where sort of you can be, people can be the most productive isn't clear. You know, when it comes to this question about what does it take to, um, to thrive in different environments, uh, I mean, and this is perhaps segueing a little bit off the, the topic of history, but, but um, uh, you know, to be a modern academic, there is a definite track you have to follow. And I, you know, it's like um, somebody was saying to me just yesterday, actually, they were explaining that um, they wanted to use AI as a generator of text. Why? They were going to use it to generate kind of boilerplate text for academic papers that they were writing. And it's like, by the time you've got something where you are on a track where you need boilerplate, that is, kind of standardized text that could be written by an AI, something is wrong with this picture. And you're, you know, you're, you're in an environment where, where there's sort of a certain layer of gunk um, that's, that's involved that shouldn't be, you know, part, that's not part of the kind of the intellectual story. And I do think that in modern academia, it is, there is a, um, uh, there are definite sort of uh, games that get played and things people have to do to succeed that don't necessarily relate to, are they, for example, the most productive, innovative, whatever kinds of thinkers? In fact, you know, it's fair to say, and I've probably said this many times, that if you want sort of the, uh, when you have a big field with lots of in institutional structure, that is a terrible formula for having sort of high level innovation happen. Because you end up with all these systems that are just like, well, you've got to be doing the same thing everybody else is doing and so on. And I think that uh, that's something that in a lot of fields at universities and so on, that's what's happened. Now, on the other side, you have uh, sort of entrepreneurism and the commercial sector and so on. And I would say it's a, it's a complicated story because there was a time when uh, starting a company was unusual and there were many kind of uh, sort of, there was quite a, uh, you had to kind of run quite a, you know, down some kind of gauntlet type thing of um, uh, to, to actually get to the point where you could start a company and where, where things worked and, you know, incorporating it wasn't trivial and it wasn't, 
and, and you know, figuring out how you do this part of, of setting up a company and that part of setting up a company and so on, there were, it was non-trivial. Now, the sort of the process of entrepreneurism has been somewhat more institutionalized. Venture capital is better understood, incubators have come up, things like this. And so, again, it has both the advantage that it's somehow easier to do, but it has the disadvantage that it's become institutionalized. And it's like, if you say to some typical venture capitalist, might be even a, you know, I have many friends in that, in that field, uh, you say, well, I want to do this weird thing. They're going to say, eh, we don't want to deal with a weird thing. We, we fund this type of track. And that's a consequence of the fact that they're funding many things every year. They've got a whole shtick with their upstream investors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not something where it's possible to have this kind of high innovation uh, situation. Um, so, I mean, it, it's tricky because there was, there was a time when starting a company was difficult to do, but if you could do it, then you sort of could do anything with it. Then it got a bit easier to do, but it got more institutionalized, and then there are more constraints. So uh, it's 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 challenging. And and for example, doing something like starting a company, and I mean, I myself have have done sort of a mixture of of running companies and running a company for the same same company for thirty five years, um, and uh, and doing um, uh, doing research and so on. And yes, there is a a certain. I mean, for me personally. Running the company is, uh, you know, I've been doing long and doing it long enough. I'm fairly experienced at it. It's not something that uh, that creates a, a sort of huge distraction for me from from what uh, from what I want to do intellectually. And actually, I find it rather invigorating to not just be, oh, I'm I'm sitting and thinking all day every day type thing. I've got other things to do. But I think this question about whether um, whether sort of getting the best people, whatever that means, to be able to thrive, it's a really challenging thing throughout history. I mean, in at, at different times, people had uh, kind of, you know, sponsors, um, uh, oh gosh, what they called them, um, uh, people who would, um, uh, you know, it would be, you know, the Duke of such and such a place would be the... Um, uh, the kind of the, the sponsor of such and such a scientist. And yes, that person would um, um, uh, would kind of um, help, uh, you know, that, that the person, the scientist will be wheeled in every so often to come and help, you know, solve the problem of the castle moat or something like this. Um, but otherwise, they were just people who were uh, kind of in the orbit, so to speak, supported by uh, some benefactor or other. But I think that the um, the thing that um, uh, so so that was sort of a thing for a while. But it's a very hit and miss kind of thing. I mean, there are endless stories about people who went in and out of favor, or or they were supported by this king who got deposed, or or this and that kind of thing. So it was a very you know people were investing in those relationships, and then it was kind of hit and miss about whether you would get somebody who would be kind of your sponsor or not. Then I would say that uh, there have been times in history where it's been kind of the, um, you know, when, when Isaac Newton went to Cambridge University, I don't know what was involved in getting into Cambridge University. I think they had tests of some kind. Um, 
I bet those tests were not, you know, the highly gamified SATs. Um, those were, and at different times in history, there's been sort of a mechanism where uh, it's actually rather, in, in, in some cases, rather nice, where it's been like sort of anybody from the country can, you know, sign up for the test. And if they do well in the test, they get a slot in the prestigious university or whatever. I mean, that mechanism is good when it's small, when there are a small number of people signing up for those tests where the tests are sort of quite personalized. Uh, you know, when you are writing essays and people who really understand the essays are reading the essays, those kinds of things, it all works well. When it becomes heavily industrialized and you've got, you know, millions of people taking tests and, you know, uh, multiple choice or AIs grading essays and things like that, I think it all gets a bit crazy. And you're measuring something, but I don't think you're measuring uh, sort of the raw, you know, a person from everywhere can come and, and uh, be the most successful. You're measuring all kinds of things about how committed were people to doing test prep? How able were they to get access to fancy test prep uh, kinds of capabilities, all those kinds of things, which, uh, which might be a relevant factor to measure if what you want to know is, you know, will they pay the Will they pay their fees for the university or will they even succeed in getting through X number of years of university if that's your objective? But are those people going to be the best, the most innovative, the people who move society forward the most? Probably not, the, uh, probably not a good way to measure that. But I think in, um, uh, and, and similarly in the, in the entrepreneurial world, I suppose the same type of thing. There was a time when it was very, uh, when it was like kind of the, um, um, uh, the the um, the kind of uh, the sponsors of of the scientists of old. You know, if you knew somebody and you knew somebody, then you could kind of slot yourself into that commercial world. I think it became, in a sense, more opened up, but then also more kind of uh, structured and less capable of dealing with kind of the the high innovation side of it. Anyway, that that's uh, a few thoughts on that. Um, my gosh, there's a question from Emmanuel Kant, probably not the real one, unfortunately. Um, do I credit E equals MC squared to Einstein or somebody else called De Preto? We discovered it before Einstein. I'm afraid I've never heard of that other person. Um, I don't know the detailed history of E equals MC squared. Um, I think the thing that, again, is, you know, when you talk about discovering something like that, there is the formula and writing it down, and there is the context that leads to it and kind of the understanding of what that is. And that formula comes out of the context of relativity theory as a sort of a, an inevitable consequence. It isn't the, it's hard to imagine that that formula uh, was, was something that would be, and, and the way it has been seen, I, I think we have a little bit of a different interpretation in the last couple of years, but, but the way it has been seen for a solid hundred years is as something which is kind of a, a, a consequence and a sort of an implication, almost a footnote to relativity theory. And in that context, it's hard to see how it arises without the structure of relativity theory. Now, you know, the thing that's often confusing about history of science is somebody will say, look, this person had this one idea that looks like this thing that emerged later. It didn't have that whole context around it. And then you have to ask, was that one idea really the same idea 
the same thing? Or was it just something that sort of floated in and was not, in the end, the thing that was properly intellectually connected and, and really was the thing that was a, a, a full understanding of what was going on? I mean, I think we see that in, um, oh, I don't know, you know, you could say of, um, what's a good example? Uh, black holes, let's say. Laplace in the 1700s talked about you know, stars where the escape velocity would be more than the speed of light, which is kind of the idea of black holes. Did Laplace in, uh, discover black holes? Not really, because Laplace didn't know about the curvature of space-time and event horizons and singularities in, in space-time and so on. Uh, Laplace correctly identified a physical effect that is related to black holes, where you can say, well, it would have been a black hole, but, but Laplace didn't know that there was more to the story than just the escape velocity becomes more than the speed of light. Um, but yet he did understand that part of the story, but that wasn't really connected to the later discoveries about black holes, which were, took a long time to happen in, um, uh, in general relativity and so on. Let's see. Uh, there's a question here about, is there a, from indifferent, is there a high period of any institution that's my favorite, e.g. Bell Labs, um, in uh, uh, 40s, Xerox Park in the 70s and 80s and so on. Um, I'm not sure I have a favorite, but it is fascinating to see these different institutions that developed a culture where just lots was discovered. And I saw both Bell Labs and Xerox Park. I, I was a consultant at Bell Labs. I visited Xerox Park during their sort of, uh, I would say, uh, definitely, well, Bell Labs probably on the on the later end of its golden age. Um, Xerox Park probably uh, right during its golden age. And I think it's very interesting what the kind of the management structures of these organizations tended to be, and also the hiring practices of these organizations. Because in a sense, you know, there was a question earlier about universities. In the time you know, universities were sort of originally from the 1200s and so on, there had been a, a notion of scholars and scholars, you know, study things in detail and so on. It is not necessarily for the scholar to invent the grand new thing. I mean, I was kind of amused seeing um, some stuff from Edison at some point and, and, and Howard Hughes as well, where, you know, these were people who were kind of in the inventor-ish set and they would occasionally bring in professors, but they brought in professors not to be the great innovators. They brought in the professors to kind of fill in the details and like, well, we need to understand some particular thing about meteorology. We need to understand some particular thing about material science. Let's bring in a scholar. Let's bring in a professor to, to kind of try and do that. Kind of recognizing the fact that for a long time, academia, was about this process of scholarship, which is a little different from the process of innovation. I mean, there clearly are examples like Isaac Newton, for example, like, well, I mean, Einstein is a good example of a, of a bad example, so to speak, because although he had a, a perfectly, he had a good uh, sort of uh, top quality university to PhD level education in physics, um, the, the actual first job he had was in the kind of the, the then equivalent of Silicon Valley, 
you know, the patent office in, 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 in Bern, um, where, you know, that was the place where, you know, refrigeration techniques and so on were all coming through the patent office. And it was kind of the, um, uh, the, the sort of combo venture capital slash Silicon Valley uh, sort of hub of its time. And so Einstein was working there at the time when he did his most uh, sort of first round of most creative work, um, rather than at a university, so to speak. And I think perhaps that the, um, uh, the tradition of universities, uh, you know, it's a complicated thing. What, what's the point of a university? I mean, back in the 1200s, it was this kind of roving band of uh, kind of somewhat monk-like scholars who were trying to uh, uh, sort of teach about things that were not part of necessarily what, um, you know, they were trying to educate people about sort of the, the wisdom from Aristotle and, and, and elsewhere um, that, was, um, uh, that was sort of, uh, you know, preserving that knowledge and passing it on to future generations, scholars doing that. Then this idea that universities are the place where sort of innovation happens um, is, a, is a more recent idea. I think it happened a bunch, well, it happened in German universities a bunch, uh, like in England, for example, there would be places like the Royal Institution that was uh, essentially a, a, a science research and presenting to the public place, not a university, it just a, a sort of separate, I don't really know what the analog of that would be in today's world. Um, it's... Uh, uh, it's something that was, um, I mean, it's a little bit like a government lab, but it isn't really like the mission of a standard government lab. It's a different kind of thing. That's where people like Faraday and Davy and so on worked. Um, again, a, a different kind of place. And I, I think that there's a certain, uh, I have to say, I think there is often a certain energy to places that have, uh, are, are not kind of in this, in this large scale flow of people doing sort of in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of industrial scale track of, of doing some particular kind of thing. And sometimes when places are newer, there's more energy associated with these things. I think probably in the US, when universities expanded dramatically, well, uh, for example, in the technical areas after Sputnik in 1957 and so on, when there was lots of uh, funding put in from the government and so on into universities and developing research at universities, that was probably a period of great productivity when kind of uh, universities were the hot place, so to speak, for, for innovation. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, there's a certain, what can I say? There's a certain different, well, there, there are different types of people who can succeed in institutions of different kinds and at different stages in those institutions. I think that, for example, at universities today, I, I can't really speak about them that much today. I haven't been so much involved in them, but certainly used to be the case that research was not managed at universities. If you were a professor at a university, nobody told you what research to do. You just did what you did. If you could get government funding, great. If you couldn't, well, that was, that was bad. But there was nobody, there was no manager at the university saying, hey, you should work on this rather than that. You know, department chairman or president of a university, uh, perish the thought, actually telling people what they should work on and what they should not work on. That would be a uh, you know, the faculty would, would come out with pitchforks and so on in that case. Well, so whereas at a place like Bell Labs or Xerox Park, there was kind of an overarching 
sort of management, uh, uh, both both um, implicit and explicit, kind of this is what we're trying to achieve. This is how we can do something. Sort of go in strategic directions and so on. And I think that that probably had for for many people that had a uh, you know it, it's always very variable for many people that had kind of a positive effect. I mean, there have been different mechanisms over the course of time for sort of institutions where there are sort of interesting innovations that happen. For example, Oxford and Cambridge in England, where there's this college system and where people are fellows of colleges and so on, uh, used to be the case that you were a fellow of this college and that was kind of all you were at the university. Then by the, by the mid 20th century, it was much more, there was a department of X that was really induced, I think, by science when people needed, you know, you needed a lab and that wasn't going to happen in you know, this college, it was something that wanted to be centralized for the university. But, you know, for, for quite a while, there were the, sort of the people who were the fellows of colleges and things, and they would often get those fellowships pretty early in life, right after they got their bachelor's degrees and so on. And, um, and then they would kind of be somehow in the orbit of that college, maybe they would be sort of permanently living there, maybe they would be kind of uh, just uh, uh, going there from time to time, but uh, that they were somehow sort of supported to do it, at least at some level, supported to do whatever academic thing they were supposed, they wanted to do. And that that was for, for many people, that was sort of a, a good deal. There are plenty of, of sort of innovations in that one can point to that came out of people who were embedded in that kind of system. So anyway, I think that that, that um, uh, uh, you know, it's always interesting to see companies, um, we'll get to a point where they say, we're so successful, we need a basic research lab, or we need a research lab. And I've seen this in many companies, I've even been involved in, in, in giving some advice to people about how to, how to set these things up. It's a very challenging thing, because you're a company, you've made a bunch of money, you've got to, you say, we're gonna, we want to plan for the future. To do that, we need to have more basic research, we're gonna bring people in, but then there's the question of, can you take the innovations that, you know, what, what happens to that? For example, when your company isn't quite as profitable anymore, what do you do to the basic research lab? Do you just say, oops, you know, those hundred million, hundreds of millions of dollars that were going to basic research, let's cut that off the budget because that way it'll look better for our stockholders, so to speak, and nobody's gonna notice that we cut the basic research lab. That's happened a bunch of times. The, um, then there's the question of, okay, you have a very successful lab, like Xerox Park, for example. It invents amazing stuff, but the mothership company can't do anything with it. It doesn't have a mechanism to get that, uh, get that innovation back into the, into the main company. I, I remember Bell Labs when I was there, um, uh, my friend Rob Pike um, made this thing called the Blit Terminal along with uh, uh, Bart. Canthy, I think was the other person's name. Um, the uh, was a the Blit terminal was a, a bitmap display terminal. This was 1982-ish time frame. Was a um, a kind of it's like a Chromebook. It was kind of a a um, a local device that would be um, uh, uh, would. It was kind of a, a way of using the phone lines because Bell Labs was after all part of the phone company. And it was, the idea was there was a central computer and then you would have this, this local 
thin client device that had a nice bitmap screen and the computing would be done on the remote computer. And then the, um, uh, you would have your sort of local interaction on this blit terminal device. Uh, it was very, very modern in many, many ways. That was very frustrating, I think, for the researchers involved because try as they might, they just couldn't get the, the actual uh, you know, corporate entity to pay attention to this thing and to start actually putting it into production and you know, providing it to phone subscribers and things like this. Didn't really happen. Uh, at that time, there was kind of a, an interesting competition between uh, this, the blit terminal kind of idea, the thin client idea where, where sort of it's just where the real computation is done on the central kind of computer power station, so to speak. And there's uh, uh, some sort of edge computation done, wasn't called that in those days, um, on, uh, on your local device. The other side of that was companies like Sun Microsystems, where the idea was to make a workstation computer using typically the then new Motorola 68000 microprocessors, which were able to have, they could have sufficient address space and so on to be able to, to deal with having decent local computation and they had bitmap displays and, and all that kind of thing, doing the computation locally. So it was kind of a, a competition. Should you do it locally? Should you do it on the main sort of centralized computer only interacting with, um, uh, you know, only having sort of local interface? I remember having dinner once with, with Rob Pike and Bill Joy, who was um, one of the founders of Sun Microsystems. And um, it was a, a, a kind of a, a big kind of, um, well, I would say, debate might be a, 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 a polite way to put it about sort of who would win in the, um, uh, the kind of local computing um, versus the remote computing thing. And I have to say at that time, I thought the remote computing thing had a better, better arguments going for it but for reasons of uh, mostly, I would say the, the, uh, the way that sort of the ingestion of research from Bell Labs into the main company being really challenging thing, that didn't what happened. Um, instead, you know, the workstation companies won. It was interesting at that time, there were, there were uh, several workstation companies, Sun Microsystems come out of Stanford, Sun stood for Stanford University Network. I remember seeing the original prototype of that in a cardboard box um, at Stanford. Um, but that was that was one system. There was another one from a company called Apollo. It's based on the East Coast. Um, and an interesting thing about sort of the technology assumptions, uh, Sun had the idea that there was the operating system underneath. There was a Unix operating system. On top, there was a Windows system that provided the user interface. Apollo had it more or less the other way around. Windows system underneath, operating system on top. Turned out that second thing just was really hard to make work because you had the Windows system was just, in a sense, a much more complicated creature than the, the operating system. And so it, it was, it tended, you know, things would topple over, so to speak, as a result of problems in the Windows system. And if there were problems in the Windows system on a kind of the Sun model, you would just fall through the operating system, but that wasn't so bad. Let's see. There's a question here about... Um, from Eggy about what technology got lost from the moon landing that can't repeat it so that it can't be repeated today. How did they shield from radiation during the moon mission? You know, I think if you look at pictures of the LEM when it landed, it's, it's covered in gold foil. Um, that was in order to shield from radiation because the, uh, the probability of a, of a ionizing particle of radiation 
being scattered from an atom increases like the square of the atomic number of the atom. And so uh, a substance like lead, like, like well, lead or gold, um, gold, because I think it can be made better into a foil, um, that was the thing that was used to, to shield from, from radiation, I think. Um, as far as technology being lost, I think it's always the case that people, uh, you have a group of people, they solve a bunch of engineering problems, and then those people move on, retire, die, whatever, um, and then it's hard to get back to the level, that level of expertise again. And, you know, I, I see that even in our technology company. It's like there's the thing we developed it 10 years ago. And it's like nobody remembers how that really worked and why we made those choices and, and so on. And to sort of bring it back out of mothballs, we are pretty good at archiving things, but it's, it's often not trivial to do that. And I think what happened in the Apollo program during the 1960s, the whole space program thing was just a, a, a sort of spectacular uh, puller in of talent. Um, in, in the US, a lot of that talent, when, when the Apollo program kind of got canceled um, in the 1971 or so, um, quite a lot of that talent migrated to Silicon Valley. Um, and that was, and it kind of dissipated. And so then getting back that kind of expertise is not trivial because it's like, oh, that person so-and-so over there knew, um, uh, you know, knew all about such and such a thing. Um, and, oh, they're off now working for Hewlett Packard or something, or Varian Associates or one of the early Silicon Valley companies. Um, and they're not, uh, uh, you know, we haven't heard from them for ages and, you know, they're off doing a different thing. So it's hard to sort of reconstruct that knowledge. Um, it's not my impression that there are things where people say, we just don't know at all how this was done. There are detailed things where it probably isn't known, but there are also things where, where it's like who, uh, you know, the early, the computers on the LEM were sort of only semi-programmable computers. And they involved people doing things like actually sort of knitting wires through magnetic cores and so on, uh, changing them depending on when the, when the, you know, the spacecraft was gonna be launched, things like this. Those are things which, yeah, we probably don't know how those were done in detail, but it really doesn't matter anymore because you know, we'd, if we were doing that, we would emulate it in software today, so to speak. It's a quite different technology stack. Um, there are things where uh, there's sort of the question, like a rocket engine, for example. You know, the, the design of rocket engines is a difficult thing, and it's been kind of a, a piece of engineering that's gradually got better over the course of you know, 60 years or 70 years or whatever it is, more than that now, um, and, you know, why is, rocket engine, why is a rocket engine hard to design? You know, you look at a rocket engine, it's full of all these tubes and pipes and, and valves and all kinds of things. It's like, why should it be so hard? Isn't it just, you know, you're burning a rocket fuel and it, it produces uh, exhaust gases. The reason is that in order to make it efficient, it tends to be that these things are operating right close to phase transitions. And it's, you're, you're having to very carefully control you know, the rate of burning versus the rate of this versus the rate of that. And these substances end up being in, in these funny, funny situations where different things are happening. And you know, if this happens, there's some overpressure valve that has to cut, you know, do this and that and the other. And it's a, it's a difficult thing that's been gradually tweaked over the course of years. I think people say that the thing that limits most rocket engines is the, the, uh, the turbo pump that um, tries to just pump fuel into the, into the combustion chamber. I think that's what sort of limits the, um, but the very fact that that's a limiting factor rather than 
something, uh, you know, rather than something which is sort of the pure physics of the rocket is kind of part of why that's difficult and, and why I think there's a sort of a, an unbroken thread of progressive development of rocket engines um, over the course of time. And uh, so that's a place where I, th I think the technology is not that different. I know SpaceX, for example, licensed old Russian designs when they started out. Um, and uh, that was you know, a place where you're sort of grandfathering on top of things that have been done before, um, because there's just a lot of sort of uh, built up um, kind of knowledge um, through the course of, of lots of probably lots of failed rocket tests, lots of blown up rockets, things like this. Um, so I, I think that's the um, um, uh, that, that's that's kind of the, the story there. Um, there's a question here about um, from Freaks. What what do I think about things like the sentiments about racism and technology and algorithmic bias? And what's the issue? What are steps that need to be taken in response? That is a, a, a hugely complicated question. Um, it's, I think the thing to understand about questions like that is in the end, you need some moral code that you think you want to follow. And people may not agree about what that code should be. Once you have that code, you can go back and sort of tell the computers to execute it. What, before you know that code, it's hard to know what you should do, so to speak. I mean, a, a sort of a famous example is, you know, you have an image search system, you type in CEO, what kinds of people do you get? Do you get the, uh, you know, do you get men, women, black, white, you know, Asian, non asian you know, what, what, what type of person do you get? Well, okay, you can ask the question, who are the current CEOs of tech companies, for example? Well, there's some answer to that. There's a definite objective answer to that question. Who would we like the CEOs of tech companies to be? Well, it kind of depends on our sort of moral code and a bunch of beliefs about society and so on. And people might not agree about that. And so the question is, what, you know, what, should, the, what should the search engine do? Should it kind of tip the scale in, in, in favor of the way one might want things to be based on some moral code? Or should it just report what's out there right now, even if what's out there like right now might not be the way one wants it to be? Those are difficult questions. And I think that uh, there's a certain, uh, there's a sort of a question of what is the role of technology in and technology companies in those kinds of, in those kinds of issues? Is it something where you're just reporting the facts, so to speak, or is it something where you, if you believe you, that the scale should be tipped, should you be involved in tipping the scale, so to speak? And I think it tends to be the case that that sort of reporting it as it is versus describing it as you would like it to be or as somebody would like it to be is, is a difficult thing to decide. I mean, this comes up a lot in, um, in things where one's doing, I don't know, algorithmic uh, estimates of, uh, you know, credits of, of uh, credit worthiness or, or, you know, possible success in this or that or the other. There's, there's, there's kind of the what it has been and the what, there's the what, it, what you want it to be and it's, you know, it, it's a difficult thing because it tends to be the case that the, uh, uh, you know, reporting it as it has been or using what it has been tends to be uh, kind of something which will, you know, it, 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 it perpetuates that cycle. And one might say that is not what one wants to have happen, 
but one has to make an active decision. That's not what one wants to have happen. And I think one has to have, one has to specify what it is one wants to have happen and expose that. And if one can agree on that, well, then one can get the AIs to follow. If one can't agree on that, it's kind of tough to, to tell the computers what to do. If the humans are all off arguing about it, then the computers really don't know what to do. And if you say, well, let's let the computers decide, that's hopeless because the, the, they have no, there's no intrinsic moral code sort of defined for an AI. That's something where the goals that we set have to be goals set by humans. And that's something where if you say, you know, the, the bright idea might be, well, let's just have the AIs watch what the humans do and emulate that. Well, that's again, back to just do what has been done in the past which might not be what you want, or many people would agree that, um, I don't know, there's, I'm, I'm reminded of some, uh, some kind of uh, amusing sort of science fiction movie which had some uh, robot in it, which um, had been uh, you know, learning to drive and it accelerated every time it saw a yellow light because it said, well, that's what the humans do. And um, the, uh, uh, but it might not be what you would want the the AI to do so to speak it might be uh, uh, so I think there was a it's it's a very very complicated area where I think that um, the thing that people perhaps sometimes make a mistake about is it's it's not really a technologically solvable problem it's something where you have to decide what you want and there's much argument perhaps about what you want once you have that decision then you can implement that in technology the role of I mean, it's sort of an interesting question. What um, uh, you know, what the role of a company versus a government versus people on their own should be in trying to figure these kinds of things out. Um, my own personal prejudice tends to be that companies should stay out of it. That companies have some business that they're doing that's I don't know providing software or services or whatever, and that's a different problem than the problem of setting kind of moral code for things. On the other hand, there are certainly cases in which one can say a company definitely shouldn't do that because it's really, really, you know, a terrible thing. And history has shown that um, a bunch of times. So it's it's a it's a difficult problem. And um, uh, I think, um, you know, you'd be, uh, you know, I, I certainly um, uh, I could tell you many kind of um, uh, uh, stories about, for example, training image identification systems. And there are all sorts of terrible things there. I mean, there are all sorts of things where uh, you will, if you, if you try and pick it up, you know, train the system based on sort of what is typical and what has been there in the past, you end up with things which are, yes, that's what's been there in the past and nobody thinks that's good or probably almost nobody thinks that's good. But what are you going to do to train your system? Unless you have some moral code that defines what you want to have happen, it's tough to say how you how you should change that. Um, let's see, maybe one or two more here. Okay, there's a question from Aaron. Do I think that monotheistic religion was in some sense a precursor to science because it presented the world as having a single truth which all people could somehow access? That's interesting. I, I've been thinking a little bit about uh, theology more than religion recently because a bunch of the sort of philosophical questions that have come out of our science project are questions about kind of the relationship of humans to the universe and the extent to which our kind of uh, 
human ways of thinking about things define how we view the universe, the, ex the extent to which sort of uh, what, the, what the global picture of the universe really is. And one of the things I find really interesting about that is there were lots of early theologians who thought about these questions. Well, there are people like Plato and so on who were not really uh, in any modern sense sort of theologically oriented, um, but then there were people from, uh, uh, I don't know, um, St. Augustine through Aquinas, through all kinds of people like that, who were absolutely kind of theologically motivated. And even people like Descartes had a certain theological strand to what they were doing, or Spinoza, or any of these kinds of people. Um, and there were questions that got thought about by those people that were, uh, that turn out to be very much the same kind of questions that we are confronted with now as we think about sort of the global implications of our science project and even the ways to think about the sort of the fundamental nature of physics, humans, mathematics, and so on. We're sort of confronted with the same questions that people thought about when the primary topic was theology. And so I, my impression is what happened is a lot of those questions about, you know, why is there order in the universe? Um, what... Uh, uh, is the is the universe sort of the set of all possible things that can happen? Is the uh, all, all these kinds of issues, and I think a lot of um, a lot of that thinking kind of got squashed as soon as kind of modern science at the time of Galileo and Newton in the 1600s and so on started up. People said, "Well, there were questions we wanted to ask about kind of how the heavens work and so on." And those questions, well, this modern science stuff, this mathematical science is doing really well at that. Let's just follow that path and not, uh, and, and, you know, this theological thinking, well, you know, there was the whole Copernicus Galileo debacle, and it just seems like those guys were off on the wrong track. Um, and, and so then the sort of the science track got followed. The fact is the theology track was thinking about questions which were different from the science track questions, those questions are a little bit back now. And in fact, it's pretty interesting to go see what the theologians said, because a lot of what they said was really pretty smart. Um, it just was stuff that was different in a different direction than the kinds of things that were thought about in terms of, of, uh, of science. And for example, monotheistic religion, it's sort of a, a, a thing where, where this kind of idea that you go up and it's bigger and it's bigger and it's bigger and it's bigger, and eventually you get to the end and it's everything and what is it? Well, it's kind of a godlike thing. And there's one of it. This idea that there's a bigger, 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 and then there's the end, and that's the everything, and there's one everything and not many everythings, was, I think, kind of the conceptual, uh, for, 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 many, for some of those theologians, at least, that was the kind of conceptual origin of God. And, uh, you know, people like from Spinoza, um, uh, even I think Gödel had some uh, rather different point of view on this, but but this idea of sort of the the limit of um, of everythingness was God, and there was only one of it. Now mathematically, that isn't really quite right, because as one discovered with transfinite numbers and all this kind of thing, that idea of the sequence and there's always a largest element is not quite the right story. But that was a that was the sort of approximating story that I think led to kind of this, uh, this sort of monotheism has to be the way it is because there's always a biggest everything. And uh, obviously then it, it, it got many other tentacles of, of, uh, of thinking about the relationship of everything to humans and, and all, kinds of other, all kinds of other issues and, and sort of then got bundled together 
with the more sort of uh, how to lead your life stories of religion. And this was also combined with the fact that the, the mode of explanation was not, you know, if we're going to explain, you know, right and wrong, we will write down a formula type thing. It was more, if, or if we're going to even explain how the universe works, we'll write down a formula. It was more told in stories and allegories and so on, because that was the method of communicating kind of intellectual ideas that was available at the time. Just as if you if you asked, you know, what did uh, Democritus or Epicurus or somebody like that say about atoms uh, back in in the you know whatever fifth century BC or something, that it was not um, it was not we'll write down a formula for Brownian motion or whatever. It was a description of atoms and almost a story about what was happening with atoms. Um, and so I think that's 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 that kind of approach. Now, I, I think it is interesting that a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of sort of development in science happened in places where monotheistic religions were big. Um, I, you know, what's the correlation between those things? I'm not sure. The, there was also science development happening in places where there weren't monotheistic religions. So I, I don't know um, what uh, um, um, uh, the extent to which that, um, uh, that was relevant. Now, it is interesting, perhaps, uh, you mentioned that the idea that um, presented the world as a place with a single truth that that uh, all people could access—that's uh, interesting. I mean, I, I, that that's an interesting thought. Um, that somehow the uh, um, that the idea that there is uh, the, the, this idea of everything—you know, the everything thing—that um, that was sort of uh, reflected in everything and that that meant that it wasn't something where it's like there's was one thing over here and one thing over there. Maybe, maybe that is something relevant to the globality of science. I mean, I think that the, the, the sort of the, the starting point in a sense for science, uh, which curiously was also an argument made for the existence of God, was the existence of order in the universe. It's like the universe could be a completely disordered place where every particle is doing its own thing, but it's not. It's instead a, a place where there are definite laws that go across the whole universe. Now, our understanding of that now, in terms of our physics project and this whole Rouliad idea and so on, is, is rather different and rather nuanced and really has the idea that actually the universe does have everything going on. It is merely our particular way of viewing the universe from our particular place in Rouliad space, just as we have a particular place in physical space that leads us to our particular view of the universe with the particular laws that we attribute to the universe. So we're really going against, away from the idea that the, the universe itself is imposing these laws that are the laws of the universe. Rather, we're saying at the base level, at the kind of real sort of level of the universe, all possible laws are being followed. It's merely that in our way of observing the universe, we attribute to the universe certain particular laws. So this idea that the laws come from, um, come from the universe, sort of come from God in a sense, having imposed that particular set of laws on the universe, that would, be, that would have been a point of view of, of the theologians for, for quite a while. I think our point of view is, is in a sense a more bizarre point of view, perhaps, but one, by the way, that probably is reflected in some theological thought that the universe is everything, really everything, and all possibilities and all possible laws and unlaws and so on, but it is merely our human interaction with it that gives it the kind of order 
that we humans perceive in it. And so that's kind of a case where, where there's sort of, you can, you can perhaps tell that some of those arguments, those arguments are not the arguments that you see in modern mathematical physics. Those are, those are arguments that are much more in, in resonance with arguments that people uh, have tried to make over the course of studying theology than arguments that people have made in the sort of specifics of mathematical physics. But they're arguments that you kind of have to untangle if you want to understand questions like, well, one that I've been greatly interested in recently, are mathematics and physics at the bottom fundamentally the same thing and merely being seen in different ways by, by us humans, so to speak. And, and that, um, uh, for that, you have to have a better understanding of the relationship of humans to this thing that is sort of the everything of the universe. But I think um, this, this idea that, uh, um, that sort of all humans have, yeah, this is an interesting thing. I mean, this question of do all humans have access to the same truth, so to speak? You know, this has clearly been uh, the whole sort of relativism uh, kind of movement has kind of uh, had one twist on that. You might think that our kind of theories would be the, the, the sort of the most relativist theories you can imagine because they're saying the actual laws of the universe are determined by characteristics of us, but, but it only goes so far because it turns out it needs only a few characteristics of us to give us sort of all the laws of the universe. So our details actually don't matter. So it's kind of a, a relativism relative to the aliens but certainly not uh, from sort of human to human, so to speak. But I think in, in um, uh, you know, these questions about, for example, the fact that science is a global activity and sort of most people more or less believe the same science is interesting. Mathematics, same way. You know, it could be mathematics with its notation as it exists today, grew up in particularly the 1600s, at a time when there had been a sort of universal language of learning, at least in the West, which was Latin, and that was kind of decaying and people were going to, you know, French, English, German, et cetera, as Italian, whatever, as, as languages of, of scholarship. And, and there was sort of an active effort to try and standardize mathematical notation. Let's have an international language of mathematics, so to speak. Um, I think that science, because it hasn't been such a big field, has ended, being, ended up being sort of scattered throughout the world. And most of the time, science is kind of, uh, you know, it's the same science is more or less believed, more or less around the world. We've seen that lots in this pandemic, for example, that people aren't off having very different science theories in different parts of the world, for better or worse. In medicine, it's not quite so obviously the case. I mean, there's sort of traditional medicine in, in countries like China. I don't know how big that is these days, but my impression is there's still quite a lot of kind of the Western medicine versus traditional medicine, where that hasn't completely flattened out across the world. I mean, some aspects of it have, and there's certainly some commercial pressure to see that happen, but I don't think it has completely happened yet. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that science probably by virtue of being a comparatively small field with high mobility of people has become something that is largely global. It isn't the case that people say, you know, during the Cold War, for example, uh, in physics, you know, I was involved in the, in the business at that time. And you could ask, was there American physics and Soviet physics? You know, were they, you know, were they separated? And the answer is a bit yes. There were things that were popular in American physics. 
And they were different from things that were popular in Soviet physics. For example, in Soviet physics, there was a, the, you know, computers weren't really a big thing there. And there was a lot more emphasis on kind of elaborate mathematical calculation. There are plenty of that in, the, in American physics too, but there was more of an emphasis in Soviet physics. There were types of questions that were explored. And I would say, I would say if, you could, if you showed me a physics paper from, I don't know, late 1970s or something like that, and sort of blinded it and said, was this a Soviet paper or an American paper? It wouldn't be hard to tell. It wouldn't be hard to tell because the approach would be somewhat different. Uh, sometimes the notation was a bit different. Um, and, uh, but it was, so that was a case where, where physics had not globalized. Whereas I would say now probably it's, it's, it's pretty globalized in that sense. So I don't know to what extent the, uh, uh, the, the you know, I, I would say that the, the rise of, of um, uh, well, another point to make about the sort of the religions and so on versus the sciences, there were plenty of institutional structures that were spread by religions and which once you had the concept of a such and such an organizational structure and you were going to feed people into it um, among them scientists, it was kind of like, well, you could, you know, the places covered by, I don't know, the Catholic church or something or were, were going to have some uniformity. And so there was going to be some possibility of sort of that same institutional structure and those same kinds of people operating in those, in, across all those places, which would lead to a certain uniformization in the kinds of thinking that were going on in, in science at that time. But I don't, I, it's a good question. Your, your original question is a good question. And I don't, I don't, um, uh, don't have a great um, uh, answer to that. Um, all right, I should probably wrap this up in just a moment here, see if there's anything I think I can handle quickly. Famous last words. Um, let's see, there's a question here, which doesn't seem like it's a quick question, but it's a really fun one from Fred. Why did it take so long to get so scientific, so technically advanced? In, the, in other words, if you went back and, you know, there's sometimes these movies where, um, Somebody, you know, is a time traveler and they go and take a, um, uh, there was one just recently, wasn't there, about um, where it's like um, somebody is the, the magic inventor because they take this thing from the future back to the distant past. And that's the seed that, uh, that sets, you know, technology off in a certain direction. You know, imagine you took a, a laptop back to ancient Greece or something. Uh, what would you do with it? What would, what would be the conclusion about it? What would be the, um, uh, you know, can you accelerate technology development? Is technology development just about having ideas or is there a big infrastructure development that's needed? You know, is it critical that you have, you know, clean water or something to be able to do certain manufacturing processes? Is it critical? And I think what tends to be the case is that there's an awful lot in the sort of development of technology that's not ideas-based, that is really based on just the progressive development of infrastructure to let you do more and more uh, you know, precision engineering, to let you do this, to figure out how you mine this kind of material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, each step there probably required an idea to get, you know, to solve that engineering problem. But in a sense, there's this whole stack of engineering problems that had to be solved in order to get you to the point where you could build something in a particular way. And sort of the idea alone, I mean, if, if Leibniz back in the late 1600s had really grokked the idea of universal computation, what would he have done with it? You know, he had built this brass 
you know, mechanical calculator, but could he have, uh, you know, said universal computation, now I can go and build computers. You know, could Babbage, for example, 1840s, was talking about making a giant analytical engine. He never built an analytical engine in the end, but, uh, you know, Ada Lovelace was going to be the CEO of the analytical engine company, but um, unfortunately that didn't work out because she got sick. But um, uh, the, uh, she was, um, uh, you know, the concept was they were going to build this giant analytical engine, steam-powered, you know, mechanical thing. Maybe they would have made the jump to electromechanical, not, not sure. But um, they're going to build this thing in the 1840s, and it was going to be the cloud computing of its day, so to speak. Um, that didn't happen uh, for sort of unfortunate personal reasons, I think, at the time. But um, in, in, um, uh, it could have been that... Um, uh, it, um, uh, you know, would, would that, uh, you know, what would that have done to the sort of trajectory of technology? And, and to what extent is it a question of sort of having the idea, like, like a one that I sometimes quote is, you know, Newton would have known that you could make an artificial satellite. But, you know, fortunately for him, he didn't make a satellite launch company. He did invest in the South Sea Company, which led, which uh, was involved in the South Sea bubble. Um, but so he was a he was definitely a, a sort of entrepreneurial investor. But he didn't invest in the you know the SpaceX of 1690 or something because um, there wasn't one, and that was a few hundred years too early. Um, so you know I think this question of of what does it take to get to a certain level of technology. I think it takes lots of, of small pieces of infrastructure development that all have to build up to get to the point where you can actually do a certain kind of technology. And that's, that's why uh, it, I mean, it, the, the, um, you know, this is one of the great achievements of our civilization that we've built up all this expertise, all these engineering capabilities, all these supply chains actually of, uh, of how you know you get this and that material to this and that place and assemble it in this and that way. So I, I think it's it's um, uh, you know the main answer is just that it involves these many many steps of engineering development and production manufacturing development and so on that are sort of inexorably take a long time. And it isn't really a, a question of you just have to have that one brilliant idea and you can kind of jump many hundreds of years into the future. Now. You know, it's interesting in an area like software, where the um, it's that's probably perhaps less true, because even in my own efforts, you know, a bunch of the ideas about symbolic programming and so on that we use today in Wolfram language and and so on, and that are still, I would say, sort of uh, many years in the future, so to speak, in terms of really widespread understanding. You know, I came up with those ideas, leveraging a bunch of ideas from mathematical logic back in the, in, you know, around 1980. Um, and that was in a sense, uh, in a sense that was sort of the just an idea idea because, you know, implementing the software aspects of it are somewhat challenging, but once you have the, once you have things committed to software, there is less of this need for the engineering stack than there is in, in the production of physical things. There's some need, you know, it's important to have structured code and you can, you know, th tools for dealing with large scale code bases. But honestly, we had pretty decent ones. At least I had built, our team had built a bunch of pretty decent ones back in the beginning of the 1980s um, that, uh, you know, they're not as sleek as the Git of today or something, 
but they weren't terrible source code control systems and, and things like that. And so that's probably a case where in software, maybe it is possible to make these jumps that are just idea-based jumps. Unfortunately, sometimes you make an idea-based jump and while you can do wonderful things with it, people can't necessarily understand what that jump was. And uh, the, the kind of the widespread use of it may, may take a lot longer, like 50, 100 more years um, to happen. All right, well, we should probably uh, wrap up here and um, uh, um, on to, uh, I'll be doing another one of these probably in the new year and look forward to um, seeing you then and uh, uh, probably being able to address a few questions that I didn't get to today. All right, thanks very much. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.